0: Welcome to World of Gas, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Oren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Dido Harding. Dido was executive chair of England's Test and Trace program for COVID and chair of NHS Improvement, a major division of the UK's healthcare system. Before entering public health, she was CEO of telecommunications company TalkTalk, and held leadership positions at major British companies, including Tesco, Sainsbury's, and Thomas Cook Group. She's also a member of the House of Lords. Dido, welcome to World of DAS. Lovely to be with you, Oren. Now, I'd like to start by talking about Test and Trace, which was the largest contact tracing effort in UK's history. What do we know now that will help us better with data in future pandemics?
1: Gosh, that's a really big question. I think Firstly, you've got to remember what we didn't know three years ago. And one of the things we didn't know three years ago is whether the general public, not just in the UK, but anywhere in the world, would participate in this data collection. If you remember it, three years ago, nurses and doctors were arguing about whether we could all be trusted to put swabs up our noses. That was open to debate. Would you get high enough quality data if people self-tested? So one of the things we've learned absolutely unambiguously worldwide is that populations will self-test and self-testing is extremely accurate. And that's hugely valuable for all infectious diseases. In fact, for a whole range of different health conditions, people will test en masse.
0: Because I forgot, because three years ago was so long ago, What you're saying is that basically public health officials, some of them maybe believe that, some of them didn't believe it, a lot of them just didn't know whether people would actually do it and that whether the self-tests were actually effective.
1: Yeah, a lot of people, a lot of clinicians to begin with were really worried about self-testing because they were worried we wouldn't follow the instructions, that we wouldn't poke it up our nose and in our throat, that we wouldn't swirl it around in the solution long enough. So they were worried about our ability to actually do the tests. They were worried that unsupervised tests would be gamed. And actually, we think we learned globally that the error in that personal data collection was relatively small. So that's the first hugely valuable thing in terms of if you haven't got the base data, you can't do anything with it, can you? The other extreme, we also learned that open access to the data changed population behavior. So the fact that certainly what we did in the UK and I know almost all developed nations did the same thing, which is we published all the data really, really quickly.
0: So basically, the number of cases we saw, the number of deaths, the number of hospital beds taken, all those types of things?
1: And down to very, very small geographic sizes so that people were able to both access the data and assess their own personal risk. Are infractions rising or falling in my town, my state, my country? But also, we made the data accessible with very open, easily usable APIs. So data scientists around the world had a huge amount of access to real-time testing data and contact tracing data that I don't think we knew pre-pandemic would be such a huge driver of population behavior.
0: Why did that open data happen? Because you could see a scenario where it wouldn't have happened and stuff like that. What were the forces that made something like that happen?
1: Such a great question. Well, I think in the UK, there was huge political pressure for open data because we were also using that data to make the judgments of Solomon. We were shutting down societies based on that data. So, not unreasonably, in a democracy, locally elected representatives were demanding to see the data to understand why only in their town were people not going to be allowed to go to school or go to work or go to a bar. So you had a lot of political pressure. But I think you also had a huge amount of peer pressure in a good way from the scientific community. It's a science puzzle. And so in the UK, we have a group, which I always think you smile, it's called SAGE the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, which is just such a cool name that it's called SAGE. And SAGE is an ad hoc committee that is called together in a science-based emergency to advise the government on what to do. And that in and of itself was an open data exercise because these were not government employees or NHS employees. These were a cross section of academics and people specialising in infectious diseases, behavioural science, modelling, you name it, who were pooling their data insights and then publishing what they discovered. And we even ended up with an independent SAGE, which was a group of clinicians and academics who weren't invited to join SAGE, who developed their own views. And so you ended up with this very public discourse about what did the data actually show. And I think that was phenomenally healthy. And again, not something that in a pandemic pre the digital age could have happened in anything like the way that it did in the last three
0: years. Test and trace was essentially considered was like a wartime data collection effort. Is there some sort of argument for some peacetime data collection effort?
1: Absolutely. And I think one of the things I worry about a lot is that Entirely naturally, people turn their back on what happened in a pandemic because they just want to forget it. And the danger is that we are going to disband all of the testing and contact tracing infrastructure and be no better off than we were three years ago. There's a strong argument for a global surveillance survey looking to spot new infectious diseases, globally agreed processes for genomic sequencing. Hard to believe, you think, three years ago, there was almost no genomic sequencing happening of infectious diseases. And we've learned so much about the power of that tool. So a global infectious disease survey where you're pooling genomic data has to be something that is every bit as important as NATO is for our future security.
0: Test and Trace was very successful, but what do you think could have made it even more successful?
1: Well, there are lots of people who would say it wasn't very successful because when we launched, just like every other country, people wanted to believe in the summer of 2020 that testing and tracing on its own would free us from lockdown. And what we learned about COVID is that COVID is such a bloody difficult disease that actually contact tracing and isolation alone doesn't free any country from isolation as I'm afraid China has proven really all too effectively that you need a vaccine. So a lot of people in the UK would say Test and Trace wasn't a success at all because it didn't free us from lockdown. What could we have done better? Well, unfortunately, I can't change the science of the particular pathogen, but I think we could have done quite a lot better. I mean, we did a naught to 15 billion pound startup in six months. Find me any startup CEO who can't tell you a catalog of things that they could do better. I can give you a very,
0: very... <laughs> from learning for next time, how do we do it differently?
1: Where would I go? I think the first thing I would pick out is that infectious diseases prey on the most vulnerable. That's been true for thousands of years. And yet everywhere in the world, we built testing and contact tracing systems that were focused on the whole population. Everyone in the world was comparing themselves on their coverage of the whole population. But actually, the way you contain an infectious disease is you really focus on the people who are most likely to be harmed by it and where the disease is most likely to be harbored. And that sadly is often the very same communities for every infectious disease. The poorest, the people who are living in the worst housing, the people who have least access to information, Every pandemic affects them. And I think if you play back what we all did on COVID, we built a system for the majority, but actually we then had to learn how to tailor it for the minority. If we'd flipped it the other way around and started with the minority, I suspect we would have saved a lot more lives.
0: Interesting. Test and started developing its own app and then eventually moved to a framework developed by Apple and Google. How do you think like the private sector should be working with government to build some of these things?
1: Well, I think that's one of the great positive lessons of the pandemic is that the combination of public sector and private sector skills, ingenuity and resources enabled us all to develop things at a speed that was just inconceivable outside of COVID. The app you referenced particularly, we started developing a Bluetooth powered contact tracing app before Google and Apple had come to the party. So that's the public sector. And the US is just as good at this with DARPA, the public sector sometimes going into a R&D space that the private sector can't see yet. But then in the space of about two months, Google and Apple said, actually, we need to look at this. And we have a set of tools because we own these platforms that you... As an app developer don't have and so the reason we switched to the google apple interface was simply google and apple between them had access to parts of the tech stack that as an app developer we didn't have so they were able to produce something with their own product which was much better and that's not that much of a surprise but the collaboration between the public sector and the private sector meant that all of this happened in the space of three and a half months and I found at a human level, a lot of the people who came from the public sector to work on Test and Trace couldn't get over how motivated the private sector people they were working with by the mission. They, they said to me, they're not just interested in making money, are they? They actually want to get this right. I said, well, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's funny that. And then the private sector people were similarly surprised at how action orientated and fast moving the public sector folk were capable of being. And they would say, well, I really thought the public sector was slow and bureaucratic, but my goodness, people work hard here and they get stuff done. And because there was actually a unanimity around what the mission was, all of us wanted our lives back. I've learned over the years that the public-private divide is nowhere near as big as people like to caricature it. And that's what we found in Test and Trace.
0: I'd be interested in your thoughts on branding. The COVID vaccine is an interesting branding. Like when I have the smallpox vaccine or something like that, the chance of me getting smallpox is very, very, very minuscule. But with the COVID vaccine the chance of me getting COVID may go down, but it's still quite high, still very, very high chance of getting it. Maybe it reduces the chance of death and reduces the chance of getting very, very sick. Could we have rebranded it a slightly different word than a vaccine to make it more accepted in society?
1: Oh, that's such a good question. Um, Firstly, I don't think there's any maybe about it. The COVID vaccines definitely reduce the risks to you from getting the disease. And the very fact that you qualify it shows that there's been a big challenge in convincing people of this. This is one of the differences between the way COVID played out in the US versus in the UK. In the UK, we really didn't have anything like the same scale of vaccine denial that I think you saw in the US. And so I'm not sure it's a question of branding. I'm afraid I think this is a question of politics. Politics abhors a vacuum. There has to be political challenge somewhere. And what happened in the US is that political debate became very polarized around the vaccine and around mask wearing. In the UK, the political debate became extremely polarized around testing and contact tracing in a way that in neither case really reflected the science. So I'm not convinced that you'd have had less vaccine denial if you just rebranded the vaccine. I think that discontent and disagreement with the political leadership was gonna need to surface somewhere. And that's almost certainly where it was likely to surface.
0: The vaccination rates in the UK and the US are roughly the same. They got there. They got there. Almost identical. And so there is still a very large percentage of people in the UK that have not been vaccinated or refuse it. It is still a thing, do you think, It would have been easier to get them to take a jab if we didn't call it a vaccine, but we called it some other type of thing.
1: I think there's so much scrutiny at the time that you wouldn't have been able to change the name just because you wanted to. I think that the piece that's really interesting in what you're saying there around vaccine take up rates is it's not the average that makes the difference. It's whether or not you succeeded in vaccinating your most vulnerable communities
0: the elderly and the vulnerable?
1: The thing the UK did, and so we trumpeted with great pride our vaccine rates, but actually it wasn't our overall vaccine rates that made us a standout implementer of the vaccine. It was the fact that very, very quickly we succeeded in persuading the elderly and the most vulnerable to get vaccinated. Whereas if you look at China, they were the opposite extreme. Actually, their percentage vaccination rates, depending how much you believe them today, are not that bad. But the percentage of over 80s who've been vaccinated is dreadful in comparison with the US or the UK.
0: Plus, with China, potentially they have a less effective vaccine.
1: Spot on. But as with all things data, the devil is in the detail rather than in the media headline.
0: How do you think the role of data should be in health? Do we have good enough data out there? Is the big challenge getting the data in? Is it organizing it? Is it analyzing it? This is a data podcast, so where can data be better in health?
1: There is so much opportunity and anybody who has ever done any work on data or tech in healthcare is somewhere along that change curve of starting with, there is a huge opportunity, that's the change curve going up. And then hitting all of the roadblocks in healthcare that make implementing technology and getting value out of data so hard. Bluntly, it's probably the only solution to our global healthcare challenges. If we carry on operating our healthcare systems in the way that we currently are, there simply aren't enough people who want to train as doctors and nurses and physios in the world. To meet the growing demand for healthcare. The only solution is to use technology and data to transform our healthcare systems to be more individually tailored and targeted. Otherwise, healthcare is going to bankrupt every part of the global economy, regardless of the way you currently pay for it.
0: Now, NHS is one of the largest, most sophisticated public health systems around. They collect incredible amounts of data. Is there a way to make that data more open while still protecting people's privacy? Like, Can we have our cake and eat it too?
1: Yeah, and I think, firstly, one of the things that people from outside the UK often make the mistake with the NHS is assuming that it is a single entity. The NHS is 11% of GDP in the UK. It's a system made up of hundreds of different independent public bodies across the country.
0: So they don't all talk to one another?
1: Definitely not.
0: Okay. I didn't know that. Okay. (laughs) This American obviously did not understand that.
1: Everyone always thinks it must be so much easier in the UK because you've just got one NHS, but we haven't. We've got a very complex federated system. There's actually, as we speak, a procurement process going on to build a federated data platform building on what was done during COVID. So Palantir and their foundry platform was used very successfully to forecast the need for hospital beds across the country during the pandemic. And that's really the first time that the NHS in the centre has had visibility of real-time operational data that's enabled concrete patient level operational decisions to cross organizational boundaries across the country. And there's a big procurement process that'll go on for quite a long time. Remember this is public sector procurement to build out on those learnings and build a genuine, national, secure, federated data platform to do exactly what you describe. And the prize in that is huge, because the thing that our UK system does have is longitudinal data. So my primary care physician, my GP, as we call them in the UK, has got all of my health records going back all my life.
0: That's huge. That's a big, big difference.
1: That's absolutely huge. And that's one of the sort of prizes that the NHS has up until now really not succeeded in leveraging, where we ought to be able to provide huge data sets to people in an entirely secure, well, I say entirely in a very secure way, to enhance not just personalized care, but research that then feeds into future
0: personalized care. If you start using this data set, if you're talking about data sets of millions of people, If you just think of oncology, what treatment should go with which thing and what type of person should get what type of treatment? We really don't have very good answers at all to this. But in the data, we probably really do, actually. We could probably save lives.
1: I completely agree. I was on the board briefly of a fabulous organization called Genomics England, which came out of David Cameron's desire to sequence the first 100,000 human genomes, and they delivered on the 100,000 about four years ago. And now Genomics England is very much part of this world, as you describe, using the relationship with the NHS to keep scaling the number of whole human genomes that we've sequenced to create a research data set that then enables individuals who provided that data to get diagnoses that they wouldn't otherwise and researchers to identify new patterns that only those large data sets are going to yield. And that is where the power of a single socialized healthcare system can be yielded. Anyone who works in the genomics space can tell you this is not as easy as just plugging into one organization's data set. It's many hundreds and a lot of complexity.
0: In the last 20 years, we've seen some massive advancements in privacy in that there's homomorphic encryption, there's differential privacy, there's basically synthetic data. There's lots of ways to take very sensitive data, like medical data, and basically recreate it in a way where you couldn't disambiguate a particular individual or de-anonymize a particular individual. Have the healthcare system really dove into some of these new technologies?
1: Yes, and we've talked about the advantages that the UK system should have in this space, but there is also the challenge, which is, as the state provider we have a very low risk appetite, quite understandably. We know that the patients and citizens worldwide are very nervous about their own personal health data. As they should be. As they should be. And if you are the government charged with protecting those citizens who are giving you all of that data because you're the healthcare provider as well, you are rightly very risk averse. So yes, I think that the pandemic demonstrated. The UK, I think through the course of the pandemic, sequenced 40% of all of the COVID genome sequences in the world. Now, we are actually quite a tiny little country, but that was because we were the most sophisticated and advanced actually at human genome sequencing. And at the bioinformatics that sit on top of that, everyone just diverted into working out how to deploy that under COVID. As people now shift onto childhood diseases, we're running a very large program at the moment, gathering data from beginning to gather data on newborns to be able to spot genetic patterns and identify diseases in newborns. But my goodness, the data protection needs to be rock solid if you're asking parents to have their child genomically sequenced at birth. I'd say that we are both at the cutting edge as a health system, but we're also pretty cautious and rightly so.
0: You mentioned about the staffing shortages that we're having in public health or health in general and medical doctors, nurses, technicians, et cetera, how should we be investing more in technology to prepare us for these staffing shortages ahead?
1: I've been very vocal, as I said earlier, that I just think that we've not been in the UK taking the workforce shortages and people management seriously enough in our healthcare system today it is the ultimate people business. It's entirely a people business. We've still got hospitals in the UK that don't even have electronic patient records. We've got people literally with paper and pencils.
0: In the US too.
1: And so this is an industry and a citizen service where technology has hardly touched it yet. And yet we know that in every other consumer or citizen service, technology has not only driven huge efficiencies, it's delivered better outcomes for its users whether you're talking financial services, telecoms, retailing, all three of which I've worked in, all those sectors have undergone a complete transformation where technology has given you and I, as consumers, substantially more control over our experience. Financial services only truly digitized after the 2008 crash because banks weren't making any money. They were forced into it. My view is the same has got to happen in healthcare, because as I said, we don't have enough people globally I'd argue that the UK needs to train more of every clinician, but just doing that on its own won't solve the problem because demand for healthcare is just going to keep growing exponentially. And that's a good thing. You and I want there to be more healthcare options as we grow older, but unless we find a way of using technology to empower us to do some of the stuff that we do in other services ourselves and to enable those clinicians to only do what only they can do, everybody's healthcare system is bust. In all my working life, I've always said you only get change when you have both a really burning platform for people to move away from and something really exciting to move towards. You don't get sustainable change if you only have one or the other. And the harsh reality is that healthcare is getting to that point. Most countries' healthcare systems were in trouble before COVID happened and have come out of COVID absolutely creaking. So that's your burning platform. The opportunity that those of us who've worked in technology and other sectors know tech can bring is it can drive transformational outcomes for users and change the economics completely.
0: Now, healthcare is also eating a lot of the economy. As you mentioned, in the UK, it's 11% of GDP. So one out of every $9 goes to healthcare. In the US, it's roughly 20% of GDP. So one out of every $5 goes to healthcare. At some point, it becomes unsustainable. You can see a scenario. How can we start thinking about the cost side as well?
1: One of the things that I found in healthcare is that the outcomes and the costs often go hand in hand, i.e. if you find something that delivers a better outcome, it almost always does it at a better cost than the poorer outcome.
0: Sorry, the better outcome is the cheaper one? Yes. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. okay. All right. This is very interesting.
1: But that's classic lean manufacturing. 10% of people who are in hospital worldwide are in hospital because of a mistake in their health care. So it's the same as the sort of lean manufacturing journey that Toyota took the world on sort of 50 years ago. Healthcare hasn't really done any of that yet. So the amount of error that is in the system Normal, completely understandable human error that we know that technology can help eliminate will drive not just better outcomes. You didn't end up having to have an operation because someone misdiagnosed you three months earlier. You didn't end up spending three extra weeks in hospital because you got an infectious disease while you were in hospital that takes out all of that error, you get a much better outcome, but actually it's delivered at much lower cost as well. So of course there are the cutting edge therapies, the CAR-T therapies and the like of a million dollars per patient, We can talk about that separately as well, but there is huge opportunity to deliver better outcomes at a lower price through standardized pathways of care, through automating, through reducing error, through a sort of process of continuous improvement that other industries have been doing for literally decades.
0: How do you think these blood tests that are coming on the market, where they're looking for different markers in the blood and other types of things, are you a big believer in them? Are you skeptical? How do you think about some of these?
1: I know enough to know that I don't know enough. So I take my cue from the proper experts. And I think in time, all of these blood tests are going to be a huge part of our health routines. I think we're still in the pretty early foothills of demonstrating the benefits and the risks that come with it. I think the philosophical debates, do you want to know that you're going to be a high probability person to get a dreadful disease in 30 years' time, I'm not sure that everyone does want to know that. In fact, I suspect most people
0: don't. The stress might be worse for you.
1: Spot on. So I think that working through what's the choices that you want individuals to be able to make once you can produce that sort of clinically valid diagnosis We're only just beginning to have some of those discussions. So I think it's early, early days. But like all forms of disruptive technology, the future will be both bigger and slightly further away than we currently anticipate.
0: Now, given that you yourself are a healthcare professional executive, what do you do for your own health or maybe for your family's health? that maybe the rest of us haven't thought about?
1: That's a great question. I suspect given the ex-native of the valley, you've been thinking about your health much more <laughs> than I have. You know? Personally, my family and I are big believers in the basics, which is sleep. There's no doubt that the amount of sleep that you get has a huge impact on your health. Exercise, diet, and de-stressing by doing the things you love. And I'm sure there are much more sophisticated things to do, but most of us aren't very good at those basics. So working on the basics, it's
0: much a Just the basics.
1: Yeah, I'm afraid I'm a bit boring in the middle of the road on that score.
0: I've hung out with you before. You're a very, very fit person. So I thought maybe you have some sort of secret to share with the rest of us.
1: I'll tell you a story, though. When I was at business school at Harvard, there was a chap in my class who was a doctor. He was much older. I was the youngest in the class. I was only 22. And the eldest was Greg, who was 35. And he seemed to find everything easy. He seemed to be able to cope with the stresses, the late nights, and no one could understand why so he, and because he was a doctor he said I'll run a lunchtime session on how to cope with stress in a high stress environment and he talked about his regular sleep patterns he talked about his diet his exercise and everyone was thinking god we were young students drinking ourselves silly late into the night in harvard square think i can't live by this and someone said to him greg what you haven't mentioned caffeine do you drink coffee at all to which he said oh yes i have 15 cups a day and all- <laughs> So one of the things I've learned is don't be conned by the facade of healthy living. The reality is everybody's a human being and we all have some weaknesses somewhere.
0: Okay. Well, this is really interesting. Now, on the business side, you have a lot of experience with really large organizations. TalkTalk has thousands of employees, millions of customers, NHS, test and trace employed 225,000 contact tracers at one point. What are some non-obvious things about running really large organizations?
1: My favorite non-obvious thing is that as the chief executive of a very large organization, you don't actually have very many levers you can pull. People think that you're all powerful. I used to say there are only two things you can really do when you're leading tens of thousands of people. You can try and get people to panic if they're being complacent, and you can try and get people to calm down if they're panicking. And there's really nothing else you can do. I love that. And you may be able to pull those particular two levers on more than one project at the same time in different parts of the forest that you're responsible for, but fundamentally, that's all you can do.
0: Got it. So either you have to like ramp up the concern or ramp down the concern, essentially. Interesting. So it's like accelerate or break, and that's about all you got. Now you joined NHS Improvement in 2017. But before that, you had a long career in the private sector. What are some things you wish you understood about the public sector before you started an NHS improvement?
1: I sort of alluded to one of them before, which is I'm a really firm believer that, and I've learned this through the last five years, people are just people. By the way, most people told me not to go near the NHS. Most people from the private sector said, go into the public sector and try and make a difference if you want. But for goodness sake, don't go into the NHS. It'll be impossible.
0: Why? They thought there was too bureaucratic.
1: Too bureaucratic, impossible to get change. What I found is that the people working in big bureaucracies in the private sector and the public sector are actually not that different. They all come to work wanting to make a difference. They want to be fairly paid and they don't want to be taken for granted. They want to believe in the purpose and the mission of the organization. It doesn't matter whether you're working for Netflix or for the NHS. You want to believe in what you're doing and you want freedom. You want autonomy and you want agency in what you're doing. I didn't really know that until I had worked in both worlds, that the human motivations are very, very similar, that the need to explain why you're doing it and why there is real purpose. In some ways, there's a greater need in the private sector than there is in the public sector, but actually you still need to do it. I've often shown, I think in the early days, Netflix had the most fantastic corporate explainer around their mission and purpose.
0: Which was amazing. I mean, it really changed the game for HR.
1: It was brilliant. And I've shown that to people in the public sector who go, whoa, we've never done anything like this. Because often in the public sector, people take for granted that people are there for a mission and a purpose. If you work in the NHS, the single largest public healthcare system in the world, the danger is you assume that people everywhere, of course they're here because they believe in it. Actually, you still have to explain it. You still have to ignite that passion, connect individuals with that purpose. And just because
0: they join for that purpose. 10 years later, the bureaucracy might be wearing them down. So you need to re-inspire them, I imagine.
1: So strangely, the public sector is less good at this than the private sector. So I had to learn, I took it for granted in the first couple of years. Well, I'm here because I really believe in it. You're all here because you really believe in it. Well, actually you have to join people's day-to-day work up with that mission just in the same way that you do in the private sector.
0: You served on the Court of Directors for the Bank of England, which is UK's central bank. What is the main difference between, let's say, the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve?
1: So the Bank of England has a much broader remit. So it's responsible for setting monetary policy, but it's also responsible for financial stability, both macro stability and the micro stability of individual organizations. So it is quite a lot broader. It also has quite a different governance approach. So I wasn't a governor of the Fed. I'm not an economist. Well, I'm not a proper economist. I was a non-executive director of the court and the court has no policy responsibility. The court is overseeing the management of the organization. So it's like being a non-exec of a Fortune 100 company, but with no strategy responsibility at all. You've got fiduciary and governance responsibility to make sure that the organization is delivering the capability that its policymakers need. It's quite a different role.
0: In the US, you have these 12 different branches of the Federal Reserve. So you'll have, let's say, the Kansas City Federal Reserve, the San Francisco Federal Reserve, the Richmond, Virginia Federal Reserve. And each one of them has like a board of directors for that. And they're usually well-known business people or academics. They're rarely like the economists. And then they'll hire the head person, like the CEO of that Federal Reserve.
1: So whereas what we have is we have a governor of the Bank of England, we're a small country, remember, so it's just one Bank of England, we don't have any regional. The governor and four deputy governors, and they are all policy experts. They're economists of one shape or form. And court consists of the governors, plus one chief operating officer, who interestingly used to work for me at Test and Trace, so has moved from the NHS into central banking, and six non-executive directors. And the non-executive directors are always people with a operational and a business background. So I spent eight years on that board. And really, my responsibility was to support and challenge a group of economists who are not experts in how you run an organisation. And central banking is as open to tech transformation as any other sector. Central banking is about the manipulation of very large sets of data. So guess what? There's a lot of opportunity and challenge with tech transformation in an institution that's over 300 years old. My role there and the role of the other court execs is about risk management around the balance sheet, around operational delivery, cybersecurity, tech transformation definitely not about setting of interest rates or regulation of individual firms, no balance sheet.
0: Now, when you're on my side of the pond, sometimes it can get very confusing what should be called England and what should be called the UK. And in this case, it's called the Bank of England, but it is for the the UK, UK, right? Yes. Is it as confusing for people who live in the UK as it is for me?
1: Sadly, I suspect it's a step more than confusing. It's a source of heated public debate, the nature of our union, sadly.
0: Okay, got it. Because then sometimes you'll have the soccer teams or football, as you say, you have England and then you'll have Wales and they'll compete separately in the World Cup, which it would be very interesting if the US went to the World Cup and it had the southern states and the northern states or something would be very, very odd.
1: I'd like to think it's because of our great strength in depth in football, aka summer, but I'm not so sure. This is an old country with very complex relationships between our individual nations, between the four nations. You could strike up a conversation with pretty much anyone and get a heated response. Okay,
0: good. All right. I will try to do that next time I'm there. One major difference with the banking systems in the US and UK is that there are things like Adjustable rate mortgages are more common, I think, in the U.S. What are some other differences that either other Brits or Americans might be more surprised to learn about?
1: I think the U.K. has been faster to go into open banking than the U.S.
0: What's open banking?
1: enabling you not just to easily move from one bank to another, but a bank that you're thinking about moving to, to be able to get access to your data in order to price a product that you might be considering buying. So genuinely open access to your personal data.
0: Okay. So some sort of open API in the US, people might use like a Plaid or something. I know in the UK and in Europe, they have more set standards where you have to be able to move that data between them.
1: So I think we've been much further ahead in open banking.
0: And that leads to just more competition or what does that lead to?
1: It should do. In theory, it leads to more competition, the ability for people to genuinely switch so that you end up with less sort of pockets of disinterested customers who are being overpriced.
0: Okay, interesting. What are some other, you think, non-obvious differences between UK politics, American, that obviously there's the obvious ones, parliamentary system versus more presidential system. What are some of the non-obvious things? Because you've had experience in both countries that only someone of both countries would understand.
1: I don't think this is a change from when I studied in the US, but they used to say when you went to Harvard, one of the things the Brits used to hand on to each other is that if you're in a dinner party in the UK, there are really only three topics of discussion that you talk about, which is you talk about sex, you talk about religion, and you talk about politics. And we were all told as we arrived in Boston, the thing you need to remember is in America, if you're at a dinner party, there are only three things that you mustn't talk
0: about.
1: I think one of the things that's so different about the UK is that, Overtly, we appear much more comfortable to have debate and discussion about things, which often to American voices sounds very insulting. And then you arrive in the U.S. and you discover superficially that people, it's quite hard to have some of the discussions. So today, it would be much easier to have a discussion about race in the workplace in the U.K. than it would be in the U.S.,
0: More difficult, you say?
1: It's easier in the UK to have the discussion. Oh, easier in the UK,
0: yes, I agree. Very
1: nervous about having the discussion in the US. In the US, you learn once you've lived there for a while that that doesn't mean that people don't have these deep feelings and thoughts. It's just quite hard to have the real discussion. Whereas in the UK, we'll have the discussion more overtly.
0: Interesting. Okay, that makes sense. A couple of personal questions. Now, Dido, which is your name is a unique name, has some classical associations. There's a famous Queen Dido of Carthage and the Aeneid. Do you think that the name has influenced your life in any way?
1: I'm not really that superstitious. So no, I don't think it has
0: I know it's not your real name, but if you went by Mary or something, do you think you'd be a very different person?
1: I don't know. I doubt it. I don't think that we shape our lives quite that easily. There's a story to it in that my maternal grandmother was called Diana, which is my legal name. She died from postnatal depression. And so although my parents christened me diana they never called me diana and being called diana is a real trigger word for me
0: oh okay
1: <laughs> the only people who ever called me diana were teachers who were cross with me
0: <laughs> and
1: if someone called me diana my parents sort of hackles rose because oh, of the okay. trigger for them so the easiest way to annoy me is to call me diana so that has <laughs> much more of an impact on me than people calling me dido i think
0: There are certain class of people that have a nickname and they always go by their nickname. I have a daughter and she always goes by her nickname, not her given name. Do you think we can learn something from those people that they're different?
1: I don't know. I mean, you put friction in people's lives by having that. My two daughters are known by their second name, which is a silly tradition from my husband's family. I've got teenage girls and they grumble that we created extra friction for them in their lives. If you're slightly poking at this, those of us that have an unusual name or a name, if you're a girl with a normally boy's name or vice versa, it creates a friction, a social friction in any new environment, which maybe you're onto something, and That's why I'm so stubborn and determined. I don't know. I think that might be quite a big leap. The genetic inheritance we have is probably a much bigger determinant of our personality types than the name we were ascribed.
0: There's a story about how you bought a prize-winning horse in the 1990s for 7,000 pounds, which I think even then was a small amount of money for a prize-winning horse. Is there some money ball analysis, data analysis for horses like there is for basketball and baseball and soccer players?
1: Well, there are plenty of professional gamblers who would say yes that have made fortunes doing that. But there's a reason why bookmakers and gaming companies make so much money. So on balance, it's not a great way to spend your money. In my case, I just got phenomenally lucky. I managed to persuade the bank that had given me my business school loan to put an extra 7,000 pounds on the top of it, which as you say, even in those days, it was a small increment on the business school loan to buy a horse and he turned out to be very good and I rode him. I was a sufficiently bad amateur jockey that I lost the ride on my own horse, which (laughs) was actually quite an achievement. And he went on and he won the equivalent in the sport of steeplechasing of an Olympic gold medal. So it turned out to be the right decision to jock me off.
0: Your grandfather was Field Marshal John Harding, who commanded the Desert Rats in World War II. Have you created some sort of affinity to World War II and like the whole Rommel, Desert Rats history?
1: Well, I was really lucky because in my late teens, I was my grandfather's plus one to events because my grandmother died when I was 15. And I used to go with him to stuff and stuff with him meant, you know, I was 17 and he introduced me to the late queen at a drinks party, as you do. He was sort of idolized in my family, but I didn't realize how much he'd actually taught me until I was about 35. And a friend of mine sent me a speech that he had given when he was the head of the British Army in the 50s. And he'd given a speech at our equivalent of West Point at Sandhurst, at a passing out parade at Sandhurst. And he described what he thought leadership was. And I read this speech I guess, 12 or 13 years after he died. And the things that I can't really tell you why I believe them about being a good leader were in that speech.
0: So it was just by osmosis, you picked them up over time. Oh, that's wonderful.
1: He had a huge impact on me. When I was at Oxford, he came up to talk to a master's class on the Gallipoli campaign because he was a young 18-year-old. Amazing. Wow.
0: Oh, I had no idea.
1: And he talked about what it was like to be in the grass on the hill above the beaches of Gallipoli and the absolute chaos of war and not knowing what on earth was going on, there being no chain of command or communication and seeing generals on their horses trotting around in the distance out of the range of gunfire. He said then, he said, I vowed that if I lived and I was ever in a leadership position, I wouldn't lead from the back. I would lead from the front. I just a priori hold it to be true that if in trouble, you lean into the trouble, you get side by side with the people at the front line, you don't sit in the back and trot round on the horse in safety. I joke about it, but actually it's true that I learned on the battlefield of Gallipoli because he taught me.
0: Interesting. That's crazy. That's amazing. All right. Last question we ask all of our guests. What conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice?
1: Oh, gosh. And you did give me some advanced warning on this, and I found this one very, very hard to answer. I'm clearly far too traditional and conventional. <laughs> if I can generalize it, in terms of career advice, every time I've reached a career fork in the road. There's been this traditional obvious thing to do that people will say to you, if you've been a chief executive, go and be a chair of a corporation. If you've been a management consultant, go and be a strategy director in another business. Don't shift industries too much. Follow the traditional corporate path and that will be easier. At every point where I faced one of those forks in the road, I've done the opposite. And that's what's brought me growth, it's what's challenged me, it's what's enabled me to learn so much more. I would never take that conventional wisdom advice of following the well-grooved career path. I think that you have a much richer experience and therefore a broader data set, given this is a data podcast, to apply to future problems that makes you much more unique.
0: This is great. Well, thank you, Dido Harding, for joining us at World of DAS. I follow you at Dido Harding on Twitter. I definitely encourage our listeners to engage with you there. Thank you so much.
1: My pleasure. Lovely to talk.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Auren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Auren, and we'd love to hear from you.